0: Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana here with my friend Enchebruta and Gordon. Our draft today, Khuf Chav Gimel 123. So, as we told everybody yesterday, we're starting a new parak today, uh, parak Yud which actually really begins on Khuf uh, Chav Bet. Um, we're going to return to our discussion of Muxa. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Amud Bet of Khuf Chav Bet and Khuf Chav Gimel. A really great zapping because they really lay out for us some fundamentals on the topic of muksa, which Anne is going to take the lead on now.
1: Thank you for that. So I wanted to start with a presumption that I always had had about muksa, and I think a lot of people have about muksa. You learn about muksa about the things that you're not allowed to touch on Shabbat because you might come to use them on Shabbat and therefore do malacha, and and that's like the basic, you know for many, many years. That was my assumption. That's what mukta is, right? And that it turns out that that's one part of what mukta is, but there's about seven different categories of what mukta is, and that's only one of them. And it's called um Shemlach Tole Isur, right? The idea that the item is ha- the only, if the only purpose for its use would be to do something asur, prohibitor on Shabbat, then that is... Then that is mukta, meaning and and the the rule of mukta, right? What does mukta mean? Literally, it means that which you cannot carry on shabbat. And the reasons why you might not be able to carry it well, it depends on what the different reasons for mukta are. But in that particular one, the assumption is well, you're going to use it to do something usur, and and it's the it's the fence, right? It's the, to protect you from doing something usur. It's not a problem of mukta itself. So it was quite shocking, I would say, when many years ago now. I discovered that this whole discussion of Muksa here, in our da'abim here, um, that really go far, far beyond the idea that, you know, your item that you might pick up that would otherwise be designated for a malacha purpose and doesn't have any other purpose, <coughs> excuse me, that that would be the, the problem. So going back to yesterday's d'af, <coughs> excuse me, going back to kuf kuf bet, I'm a bet. Um, we have a Mishnah that says as follows. So this Mishnah says that any vessel could be moved on Shabbat and their doors, which is a whole complicated thing, right? But the idea is that if these doors were dismantled on Shabbat, well, that's okay. They're still movable. There's still something you can handle on Shabbat. As long as they're not like the full doors of a house, the doors in the house, you couldn't move on Shabbat because they're not prepared from before Shabbat, meaning you have not designated them in your mind before Shabbat to be something that you could then move on Shabbat. This is a complicated discussion and I don't want to get too bogged down into it because we have so much more to talk about today. So then the Mishnah, we're still in the Mishnah on Kuf Bet goes on. No tell Adam Kornas, so a person could take a small mallet, a small hammer, right? A nutcracker, really, because to smash, to crack the nut, to, to crack shelled nuts so that you could get the nuts out. Nuts with shells, so you could get them out. You can have a, an axe that you could move on Shabbat, right? Not for chopping down trees, obviously, but if you needed to, you know, to chop um a, a cake of figs, which apparently gets quite hard, you could use an axe, even though usually the pro, the the purpose of that item would be for something that would be prohibited on Shabbat and then it says also you can move a saw magira why la gorba etigvina, if you want to again if you want to cut cheese so again, you can't use a saw to cut to saw wood, but you can use the same tool that would otherwise be a saw because it has a purpose on Shabbat that you um, that is not the isur, that is not the prohibited activity. So each one of these things, oh, and there's one more. magrefa ligroth ba You could use a spade to scoop up your dried figs with. So each one of these things, you know, now you've given your your muksa item, your that you that was prohibited because of using it for some kind of a item, asur activity on Shabbat. Now you've given it a permitted activity, and so now you can handle that item. Again, not to go do the prohibited activity, but to do the permitted activity. And then it goes on with a few other items, again, in the same vein. Now, part of the question here, when you look at this, like, why would you think, going back to the very beginning of the Mishnah, it says, Mm -hmm. you can handle all of the utensils, you can move all the utensils on Shabbat, that's presuming, I would say, that presumes knowledge of some, something that we don't have yet on this daf, because it's a story that comes up on today's daf, right? Everything I've just described, every that Mishnah is from yesterday's daf, I'm a bet, which we did not get to because we were going to talk about it today, right now. Um, so the, the discussion that happens on today's daf is, I would say, exactly what we need. We have a new Mishnah, we have a new parak. And it says, "Kol hakelim nitalin b'Shabbat." Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading back the same Mishnah. One second, Rabbi Omer, "Kol hakelim nitalin." So this is Rabbi on. I'm now on Kufkav Gimel Amud Bet. Rabbi Omer, "Kol hakelim nitalin chutz min ha masar hagadol v'yatechal machresha." So Rabbi says you can move everything on Shabbat. You can handle anything on Shabbat, except for the large saw, meaning something that would not be usable for any small kind of food item on Shabbat, and the blade of the plow. Those are sharp, they're ready. You have to use them for for the designated activity, which is a malacha. There's concern that because they're expensive, they could be damaged. And these are all, these touch on, all these different categories, touch on on other categories of muqsa. We spoke about this eons ago, that you can have something that is muqsa because it is, it is, inherently an expensive item you can have it because its use is specifically for something that is a mitzvah you can have it for something that 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 has that where the item has no use whatsoever you have a rock right you're just going to like handle a rock you don't just handle a rock you don't just pick it up and and so then the classic case and i've mentioned this on the podcast before what if you were going to use it as a doorstop suddenly all kinds of items that would otherwise be prohibited because their identity would be for a a prohibited activity but if you use it if you re repurpose it so to speak with an, with a designated purpose that is permitted on not like a doorstop now you have removed it from the altogether asor category but this mishnah says and it's a short mishnah rabbi mm-hmm. yosi you can handle you can move any of the kelim except for these the the large saw on the blade of the plow so the tricky part is, why? Why are we even talking about it then? If you can handle everything except for these two things, why not just say, don't move those two Kalim on Shabbat? Why would you say everything is permitted except for those two? And that is the crux of it all. Because what happens is, the Gemara goes on to say, there was a time when all of the Kalim on Shabbat were prohibited from being touched at all. and That's the rest of our daf. So let me just, here we go. Tanarabbanan, it's not the rest of Ardaf, it's the rest of the part that I want to talk about. Tanarabbanan, Barishona Hayu Omrim Shloshak kelim nitalim in the beginning, meaning back in the day. Literally, Barishona here literally means, you know, initially, but it means, that contextually, it means back in the day. Hayu Omrim Shloshak kelim. these were the three, 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 and only these three utensils were available for use s'habat. Shabbat a knife for cutting the cake of dried figs. I feel like we all should have a cake of dried figs to sample this because it comes so often.
0: I've always wanted to know what the cake of dried figs tastes like. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Listeron there's It says here it's it's some kind of, I don't know, I'm going to call it a spoon because they didn't really have forks yet in the world, but it does seem to be some kind of I don't know, both a grabby utensil and a a scoopy utensil, right? That you could take something out of the pot. And a small table knife. And that's it! You've got those three utensils, and that is it. So it goes slowly, over time, they would. They rescinded the rule that said you can't handle anything, right? They allowed more and more different kinds of kelim to be handled on Shabbat. So again, I want to say, what's going on here? Why was this, all this stuff not permitted to begin with? And you know, take a look at the Gemara, and you'll see how it goes through very specifically um how each of these. What does it mean that they? rescinded part of the decree and rescinded part of the decree and rescinded part of the decree, each of the categories that were, you know, then allowed to be included in what you were allowed to handle. Um, but what happens is, is, is this was, goes back to the time of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, you'll know from Tanakh, right? Nehemiah is, his book comes together with Ezra. And this is after the Aliyah from Bavel, and there's a concern, right, that, well, basically, the idea was that in the time of Nehemiah, and we're gonna re- I'm going to read you a little bit from the book of Nehemiah itself, um, there's a concern that there was not a proper observance and attention to Shabbat. Here, so let me just, I've already opened this up. It's Nehemiah, Parakir Gimel, chapter 13, um, verse 15 and onwards. It says, in those days saw I saw in J- Judah meaning in Judah in the land of Israel, some treading what wi- i'm reading in English because <coughs> for the sp- for the sake of um i guess time it's also i think perhaps i don't know there's something more gripping about it in the Hebrew to me, but <coughs> let's be practical here and read the English. People were treading in the wine presses on the sh- on Shabbat and bringing in heaps of corn and lading, l- loading the donkeys with the corn. And also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens <laughs> which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And, okay, so and it goes on as that the they're, they're trading with the people from Sur, from Tyre, and they bring in fish and all kinds of other merchant goods and they sell them. there's all kinds of transactions going on on Shabbat with B'nai Israel and in Jerusalem. Says, then I contended, with the nobles of Judah at Chorei Yehuda, and I said to them, "What evil thing is this that you do, and you profane the Sabbath day? You know, did your fathers do this? Did your forefathers do this? Did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? And you, meaning I believe, referring to korban Habayit, and yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath." So the Gemara says.
0: Because of all this, Wait, I just want to just want to interject here um, that parak is worth opening. This is totally just a digression here, because it's amazing to see that it's the last parak of Nehemiah after the Shibat Zion, the return to Israel, the rebuilding of the second temple, that parak basically outlines a list of chataim of sins that B'nai Israel were still engaged in, even after the miracle of being able to return and build the second temple. So I I think it shows that sort of there's always been issues that sort of even when you think there might have been this incredible religious experience or religious renewing, not everybody kept the law the way that it was sort of meant to be kept. And this is a perfect example of that that we see in Nehemiah, that there really seems to be a large piece of the, I don't know if I would say large, there was a significant piece of the population that was really not keeping Shabbat at all.
1: Oh, I think it was large because here's the Gemara. This is the, the first passage that I just read, right? Rabbi Khanina said that this mission was learned in the time of Nechemia, meaning this mission that said you can't handle anything. You can't move any item. Because what basically what happened is that they made this they (coughs) made this very, very stringent decree that nothing could be touched. Because if you it's kind of, you know, swing the pendulum back the other way. If people were not treating Shabbat carefully, and they so clearly were not treating Shabbat carefully, if there's ongoing commerce, right? There's ongoing production of Produce and then the commerce and trade that goes on that accompanies it, right, in Jerusalem no less, right. This is not something that was happening like in the, you know, in the shadows. This was like front and center. So the decree was, you may not handle anything. Okay, fine. Right. You'll it, use it, a little bit of, of uh, tableware for your Shabbat meal, and that's it. Yeah, it
0: was so. It was so front and center. Again, I really encourage our learners to read the parak that basically Nehemiah had to close off the wall of Yerushalayim, that if you read Aleph and bet he painstakingly repaired, which had been breached, and basically put guards up to make sure that the merchants would not congregate outside of the wall to do business on Shabbat.
1: So all of this, to me, when I first learned this, and it, every time I come back to it, like right now, I find it revelatory that the whole nature of mukta, right, this thing that we have, uh, uh, we safeguard ourselves against handling things that are not designated for Shabbat, right? Because basically you can designate almost anything for Shabbat if you give it a purpose for Shabbat. But anything that does not have a purpose for Shabbat is is has this identity of fundamentally being a mundane, a, a weekday kind of object. And the source of that is people did not take Shabbat seriously enough at all, meaning they were not keeping Shabbat. So to get people to keep Shabbat, there was very extreme, uh, you know, a very extreme decree put in place not to handle anything at all. And then if you can't handle anything at all, then you can't, you know, deal with your produce and you can't deal with commerce. And what I find remarkable is, A, you know, to the extent that it did work, and we know that it did work because they rescinded, right? They rolled back this decree in in stages, hotiru v'chazru, hotiru v'chazru means that like over time, and it was over time, there's a recognition that some of these items that had been kind of put in, you know, labeled taboo that you cannot handle in about Shabbat, labeled muksa fun, fundamentally, were now no longer muksa. to the extent that by the time we get to our mishnah, meaning not yesterday's mishnah, but today's mishnah, really everything is fine except for those very two specific items. Now, we can add other categories to m- muksa. you know, um, a surgeon's tools, are, which nowadays the surgeon's tools are at the hospital, right? But back in the day, again, you might have a doctor, a home doctor would have, you know, careful or jeweler's items, right? Those kinds of things which are considered um, fragile and also also very expensive. So they are muksa because they don't have a purpose in Shabbat because the only reason you would use them would be for that profession. But if for some reason you lo and behold needed them for some non-professional reason on Shabbat. So then again, it can be designated for use on Shabbat because it's acceptable nowadays to do that. But the assumption is that, you know, the entirety of anything you might've moved, I keep, again, like they wouldn't be able to handle a book. Now they didn't have books in the way that we have books today, but still, right? They, and, and again, like what did they eat off of? Because there's no plate on that list. So it's not entirely clear to me how, you know, how much lives changed when this decree was put in place. And there must have been great relief as it was rescinded and rescinded. But the bottom line is, Muqsa as a category of halakha um, is much bigger, you know, a much larger area, a much more imposing area of halakha than be careful not to touch something that you might come to do a malacha with as a fence to protect yourself from doing the malacha. The entirety of Muksa is designed to make sure that people honor Shabbat and keep it.
0: Right. So it's almost like it was an extreme action taken because Nechemia saw something extreme happening, uh, you know, that Shabbat was really not being kept. What I also find fascinating about the discussion here is, you know, the section, the, the next statement of Rabbi Eleazar, right, where he says, I'm a Rabbi Eleazar, you know, kaninu makalot uh, kulan kodem hatarat kelim nishnu. that all of these Tana'idic teachings about the tubes and staffs and a knob and a mortar, right, some of these statements of Beit Shama and Beit Hillel, all of these were taught before the movement of utensils was permitted. And this also is, I think, something interesting about Torah Shabal Peh, that the Gemara the, the here is acknowledging, well, I guess, you know, Ravi is that we have sort of uh, kept Tanaitic statements that were teachings not necessarily uh, relevant to the time of the Mishnah itself. That in other words, we sort of have codified or uh, kept, you know, kept uh, teachings that apply to a previous era. Um, and just sort of them being aware of sort of historically that Torah Sheba'al Pet changes and the importance of maybe keeping some of those teachings, even though they may not have been applicable or that the the halakha actually evolved was very interesting to me from like a meta sort of view of how the Gemara itself views Torah Sheba'al Pet.
1: You raise an interesting point, I think. the other, the other The tricky thing that comes out of that is when the decrees are kept, you know, they're preserved in the Torah peh, and then what happens when things are out of order, I mean, out of chronological order, as we've just seen, right, between yesterday's DAF and today's DAF and the mission and the Gemara and so on, right, then at what point do we say, oh, right, that took place during, under that decree, and then that must have happened, you know, after the decree was no longer fully enforced and so on. And I think that that's part of what this Gemara, meaning part, the part that I didn't read, that's part of what it's making sense of to understand well, exactly when what happened.
0: Right. So I think this gets into a much larger issue, which is a, uh, either a comment or a question I'm going to sort of like leave us hanging with for this episode, which is I think we've learned enough of the DAF that it's interesting to see the metho- some of the methodologies that are used in order to resolve a Mishnah or a, a Briso or a Tenaitic statement that just doesn't seem to line up with something else with another Tenaitic statement. So sometimes we've seen where they say it's a corrupt Mishnah, right? Where they come back and they give like, no, this is actually how the Mishnah should have been read. A word may have been missing or something like this. This is a totally different method, which is saying we kept a teaching and it was, you know, recited, memorized, or whatever it was, from generation to generation. But it actually didn't apply anymore from the time when, like, I guess the Mishnah was actually redacted. It was a totally different set of circumstances. And, you know, I think the more we immerse ourselves in the type of learning that Mishnah and Gemara are, the teachings of the Tanaim and Amoraim, you know, I hope most of us can come to a conclusion that, it may feel arbitrary to some people. Like, how do they de- decide this time this was the resolution? How do they decide that time that was the resolution? But I believe that's the idea of the Masorah: is that a rabbi, you know, somebody would speak up and say, this was really the Masora that I had for my teacher, is that this was the way to, underso- to understand this particular statement or this particular teaching. And so, you know, something I'm personally going to start keeping track of is sort of these types of methods of resolution, um, which again are not, it's not bringing a proof, but it's more saying, uh, you know, I know this was a corrupt Mishnah. I know that this Mishnah doesn't even apply to the time period that we're talking of. All these different methods that need to be employed to make sense of the Torah Sheba al Peh as it starts to actually get collected and really become organized for the first time.
1: Beautiful. I think also I want to note, not this is going back to the content, as opposed to this kind of bigger question that you've raised. Um, I think that when we do pay attention to mukta items, right, when we pay attention to what we can handle and what we cannot handle, it sounds like such a, you know, can't you just pick up anything? And the answer is, well, if you pay attention to what's designated for use on Shabbat and you focus on those things, it really does change, I think, the nature of Shabbat because, well, nowadays, so many things of mukta are electronics. But if you leave all the electronics aside and you still say, say, "like okay, well, what do I really need here for my day to be Shabbat?" I think that it it gives a qualitative difference to the day because it heightens your own awareness of the fact that what you're handling is dafka for Shabbat. Now, I don't want to make it too you know too burdensome. That's not that's not the point. But especially since kalim you could use anything. But there, I I appreciate the the antidote to the time of Nehemia being a, a push, an insistence that people heighten their own awareness to what they're doing.
0: Today's stuff is meta. <laughs> That's all I can say.
1: <laughs> well, we'll conclude with that. A lot to
0: think about in terms of historically how Shabbat was kept. Um, you know, again, I think just seeing an example that like, you know, not, halacha was not always kept in this ideal way in all generations and sometimes some very strong tactics had to be put in place uh, to sort this of help people. This, help, this next story. Right. To help. No, th- that parakem of Nehemiah is totally shocking. I mean, there's also a lot of intermarriage and other things that's mentioned there. Um, <laughs> but to look at that and also just to see again uh, the idea of recording things that may not even be relevant and that that in itself has value as well. Uh, that's our dot for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Ravani Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, let us know what you think about this stuff and some of the uh very interesting issues that it raises on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.